Afghanistan's education ministry says women will be suspended from universities until further notice. The move is expected to take effect immediately. It further restricts women's access to formal education as they were already excluded from secondary schooling. Here's the BBC's Anbarasan Itirajan. This has come as a huge shock and dismay for thousands of Afghan female students. You know, we were aspiring to become doctors and engineers, and some of them had already returned their final exams or preparing for their final exams, and all the future now is uncertain. They remain in limbo, and the international community is strongly condemned, like the U.S., the U.K., and the U.N. have strongly reacted immediately after this announcement because this is putting the future of tens and thousands of women at stake. At one woman uh, student, she was talking to the BBC earlier, she said, they destroyed the only bridge that could connect me with my future. A 97-year-old German woman has been given a two-year suspended sentence for complicity in the murder of more than 10,000 people during the Holocaust. It was one of Germany's last trials of criminals from the Nazi era. Ermgard Fuchner had worked as a secretary to the commander of the Stutthof concentration camp in what is now Poland. The judge rejected her lawyer's argument that she did not know about the killings. Frederick Milhofer is a court spokeswoman. After hearing the evidence, the court has decided that the accused, through her work as a shorthand typist at the Stutthof concentration camp, knowingly and willingly supported the cruel deaths of more than 10,500 prisoners. Fergner sat in a wheelchair in the courtroom, wearing a white cap and a medical mask. She was the first woman in decades to be tried in Germany for Nazi-era crimes. And that's the news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Money Talk. Good morning. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong and I'm Andrew Work and this is Money Talk on Mahump, Mahump, Mahump. My lovely little hump day, a.k.a. Wednesday. The Bank of Japan pulled a gotcha yesterday with its announcement that it would allow the yield of the 10-year Japanese government bond to move 50 basis points either side of its 0% target. BOJ says it wants to, quote, encourage a smoother formation of the entire yield curve, but it isn't raising interest rates from negative territory yet. Energy stocks could rise with heating needs, but oil prices were tempered by an expected reduced travel in North America during the holiday season. Why? Canada is sending a massive, get this, bombogenesis cyclone named Elliot to the American Northeast. In other words, a monumental extension of the polar vortex with hurricane-strength winds is going to extend all the way to Florida. This will involve the temperature dropping to maybe 50 degrees Celsius and lots of snow. Similar conditions have already hit Vancouver on the West Coast, causing power outages and chaos at the airport with flights canceled all over the place. The USA approved a $1.7 trillion spending bill that will do, well, it'll do a hell of a lot. It will provide spending for major agencies, more military aid for the Ukraine, good for weapons maker stocks maybe, and fund the new FBI headquarters. Locally, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is on a tear with a big announcement about expanding the Stock Connect program, and it is opening an office in New York City. I'm kind of surprised they didn't have one already. 
We're going to get into it on Wednesday's Money Talk with Hao uh, Hong, the chief economist at Grow Investment Group, Alicia Garcia Herrero, chief economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Uh, and the first British banknotes with King Charles III were revealed yesterday. Google them up. And tell us what you think about it on our Facebook page. You can find our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And that's it. We're going hard in with Money Talk. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, it's market time. U.S. stocks are losers no more. I won't say it was a banner day, but the market put the brakes on a four-day slide to see the Dow up 0.28%, the S&P 500 up 0.15%, and the Nasdaq up an underwhelming 0.02%. FedEx results just came out, and it beat earnings and picked up 3% in trading. But they are going to park planes, raise rates, and close offices in 2003 in anticipation of a recession and inflation. Not encouraging. The Toronto Stock Exchange main index picked up 0.3%, beating American bourses. If oil continues to rise, watch this space. European indices were essentially flat, trading just this side or that side of the zero line. The stock 600 shed 0.4%, as did the DAX and the CAC. The FTSE, too, the British and Italian indices both clocked upwards by a shade over 0.1%. Auto stock indices lost 1.5%, while the banking sector rose 1.7% in trading. Commerce Bank was up 9.8% in one-day trading, just shy of its 52-week high. And remember I mentioned the Finnish energy company, Fortum, being a top performer yesterday? They outdid themselves again, picking up over 11% on Tuesday. Asian stocks fell with the Kospi down 0.8%, the Shanghai Composite down 1.1%, the Hang Seng down 1.3%, and the Nikkei 225 down, get this, minus 2.5% as the Bank of Japan made a shock announcement to widen the yield curve control tolerance target range, even as it maintained low interest rates. The move also saw the Japanese yen pick up 3% on the U.S. dollar. Brent crude oil was rising, with the Brent threatening to break the $80 mark, but it is being tempered by expectations of winter weather chaos, suppressing holiday travel in the U.S. Midwest and Northeast. The Vancouver International Airport is closed with a very Canadian, but not very Vancouver, Arctic conditions. No guarantee Mrs. Work and many other Hong Kongers will make it home for Christmas, which will no doubt depress the Hang Seng Christmas cheer index. Natural gas dropped another 8.5%. And I told you yesterday to keep an eye on it, and wow. More cheer in the metals markets as all the heavies reverse their decline. Copper was up. Gold is up 1.7%, passing the $1,800 mark. Platinum is up 2.6%, and palladium is up 3.8% after recent big losses. And put some silver tinsel on the tree. Silver is up 5.3%. Looking at bonds, the U.S. and Japanese yields rose in the wake of the aforementioned BOJ moves. Uh, In other currencies, the euro picked up against the U.S. dollar, but the British pound did even better. Many people liked the look of the new Kingly banknotes. The Canadian dollar was similarly strong, picking up 0.4% against the U.S. dollar. The Aussie dollar and Kiwi dollar slipped against the greenback, while Asian currencies were up with the Chinese yuan and Singapore dollar gaining. But the U.S. dollar lost 3.8% against the Japanese yen. Again, that BOJ shocker. Looking at Bitcoin, it's up uh, 3% in the past 24 hours, while Ethereum has gained over 4.4%. And right now, crypto is rising. 
<clears throat> I do want to have a look at our markets. Uh, right now, the Australian Stock Exchange is on its way up, looking good. And the Hong Kong Futures Index is up, uh, looking to be up 0.115%. So maybe a good day for Hong Kong and Australia. All right, we got another spectacular Wednesday lined up for you. Uh, first guest I'm going to welcome is Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group. Good morning, uh, Hao Hong. Good morning to you. Good morning. We also welcome back to the show Alicia Garcia Herrero, Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis and La Mujer Más Inteligente de Asia. Welcome, Alicia. Hello. <laughs> Hello. And of course, we have Barry Wood, RTHK's International Economics Correspondent in Washington, D.C. Good morning to you, Andrew, and hey. good morning to everyone. Hey, great to have you. Um, I'm guessing, Alicia, a little bit less than impressed with my Spanish. I'll have to work on that. <laughs> the Japanese, guys, the Japanese yen is up, the Nikkei down, and bond yields are up on the back of the big announcement from the BOJ. Um, you know, we were gently discussing the post-Corona era yesterday on Money Talk, but it looks like the now-Corona era is going out with a bang, not a whimper. Um, Alicia, CNBC said, shocks. Financial Times said stuns, but the, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a gentler surprises about this BOJ announcement. What does it mean, and what is your reaction? Well, first of all, I really don't understand why they're so stunned, because everybody has been asking the BOJ to get out of uh, yield curve control. And, and the BOJ, humbly and only mildly, has done so. It's just that it's done too little, yeah? Uh, basically 25 basis points. But I think what the BOJ is is uh, doing is to prepare to prepare the market because uh, mark-to-market practices will make it very expensive for lifers and for the BOJ itself to react to this because it's basically going to hurt uh, the balance sheet of, of, of the financial institution. So I think it's just the beginning. And... and Again, I mean, it was to be expected, yeah, because the, the BOJ was, was totally stuck with, with, it, with this policy. So there we go. I mean, we, we should have realized that they had to do it at some point. And, and there you go. They did it yesterday. Okay. How hung? What do you figure? Um, yeah, no one should be surprised. I mean, obviously, uh, the previous ultra loose monetary policy is unsustainable. Uh, so yesterday, when uh, the announcement was made, um, it the market was surprised, especially if, you, if you're in China, right? So you listen to the domestic analysts talking about, you know, how the Japanese uh, monetary policy change is going to affect the Chinese market. And subsequently, the Chinese market is down quite substantially. It's down almost 2% together with the Japanese uh, Nikkei. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and the rest of the world is actually quite steady. Right? So it makes you wonder, you know, who is the target of the carry trade. And why, why is everybody so shocked and surprised and Alicia's saying eh, maybe we shouldn't be so shocked and surprised Is it, was it the timing of it like were people expecting something like this but later yeah because you know, he's not going out until April next year right so it's a, it's a bit earlier than usual and also you know during the holiday season when trading volume is so low uh, with, with such a big announcement and actually it's very easy to induce market volatility uh, and also you know for, from a Chinese perspective um, the Japanese yen the depreciation has been sort of uh, putting pressure on the Chinese yen as well and as you know because the Chinese debt are priced in the Chinese yen 
And therefore, you know, if there's further depreciation from the Chinese yuan, it could destabilize the Chinese market. Right. So maybe people on this side of the world uh, saw it coming a little bit better. Barry, uh, the last time I talked to you two weeks ago, you were in Tokyo. I'm sure you got, I'm sure you got the inside scoop and knew this was coming. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> but, you're, but you're back look, in D.C. now. What's it, what, what are, how are Americans looking at this? I had the good fortune exactly two weeks ago to be talking to Aisuke Sakikabara. And Mr. Sakakibara was usually known as Mr. Yen. And uh, he's still teaching at the university in Tokyo. I had known him some years ago. But he was saying that uh, the yen, which had gone all the way to 150 against the dollar and then had retreated to the 142 range, he wouldn't be surprised if it went to 120. What you really see here, Andrew, just as both Alicia and Howe have said, is this is a modest move towards tightening. You know, the reason that the yen went so low was this gap between monetary policy in most of the industrial countries of tightening while the Japanese central bank was loosening, you know, flooding the market to, uh, you know, prevent deflation. And now they've got a 3% inflation rate and they're beginning to attack it. So I think Alicia and Howe have it exactly right. It shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was. Mm. So, for example, for my, my, my day job away from RTHK, I've got to run a major event. We're considering doing it in Japan uh, late next year. And I'm thinking, hmm, if i got to pay the deposit, should I pay the deposit now or buy yen now to pay the deposit later? I mean, where do we expect the yen to go? Alicia, you well, I think the yen yeah, is going to strengthen. Yeah. And I think it's going to move towards 120. You know, let's not forget that the yen used to be at around 90. And, uh, you know, I, I think 120, 130, but I don't know. This is not my area, but I did have this good fortune of talking to Mr. Yen. Hmm. <laughs> Alicia, you, you want to take a crack at where the yen's going? Yes, sure. I, I actually quite agree. I mean, it, the whole thing is about interest rate differential, at least in the short run. Okay, we all understand that the yen should be weak, uh, structurally, because... Uh, potential growth in Japan is extremely low. So, you know, you can't have a strong currency if your, um, uh, for basically your productivity is 0.5 as it is in Japan and that your potential growth is below one. But, but this, the weakening of the yen was cyclical and it was indeed absolutely because of massive interest rate differentials. Those interest rate differentials will peak We'll peak in, ma in March, because that's when we'll get above 5% for the U.S. And what the BOJ is doing is to tell everybody that, that that's the max, that the BOJ is going to move at some point. It might not do it now. Probably Corolla will never get out of negative rates. But it is already starting to lift the yield curve control. Let's remember that the RBA lifted first the yield curve control in November 2021. 20, which was a massive surprise for the market, I would say even more than the yen, and it was quite disruptive because it's hard to get out of there. And, and for the BOJ, it's even harder because they have kept this policy much longer than the RBA did keep it. So this is why I think the BOJ has to be very careful with them, very little true, and even so, they surprised the market, even if we all knew that they had to get out of this situation at some point. So, so they will come back, and because they will come back, there's that interest rate differential on the long end will shrink. Thus, the yen should appreciate. That's, to me, a very clear 
So I agree with Sakativa, and, and he knows what he's talking about. So I quite agree with 120 or even less. Hmm. Um, so there's monetary policy is the big news out of Japan, but I mean, uh, fiscal policy spending in the United States is another one of the big stories that I've got my eye on. Uh, $1.7 trillion spending package passed by Congress in the United States. Um, Barry, what's, what's in that package and, you know, what's, what's going to be the impact? Well, thanks for the opportunity to criticize my own government. This is <laughs> shocking, <clears throat> mainly because people haven't even read this legislation, which is 4,000 pages in length, and they're going to vote on it tomorrow. No one knows really what's in it. We have summaries released by both the Senate and the House. But in answer to your question, yes, disaster relief, mental health, college access, uh, Capitol Police, uh, National Institutes of Health, a whole bunch of money, $43 billion for the Ukraine uh, war that uh, the Americans are largely financing and the Ukrainian president is is headed to Washington, we're led to believe. And of course, um, one thing that is interesting in this legislation, Andrew, is that TikTok is going to be banned from all government laptops and mobile devices hmm. because the expectation is that anything that goes into TikTok is going into... Chinese authorities. So, look, it's a massive bill. Take $1.7 trillion, add it to the $4 trillion already, and no one should be surprised that there's a high inflation in the United States. Yep. How, how Hong, what's your, what's your take on the impact uh, in the United States and, and, and up abroad? Yeah, I think no one is too surprised by the size of the deficit, right? So it's been uh, so the next thing you know, there will be a discussion uh, on the uh, uplifting of the debt limit, uh, and then you know there will be you know government shutdowns, that kind of uh, drama going on. Uh, so you know, it's almost like an annual ritual, uh, you know, for the world. So I think you know even though it's very significant for the U.S. economy, uh, but I think the market will get over it very quickly. Yeah, Alicia, Alicia, do you have your eye on this as well? Well, I would say that, yes, I agree that, you know, this is not nice for the Fed. <laughs> mm -hmm. I agree with that. But not the whole package is inflationary. Of course, Ukraine isn't. Yeah? I mean, there's a lot of that package, or at least part of that, that, that has nothing to do with demand in the U.S. So, so for that part, it won't be. But, but I do think that Powell had, you know, when, when in his mind, when basically pushing all of us even further, <laughs> about yeah. five, I mean, in our mind of where the rates will end in the U.S., he probably had um, this package in mind. And he also had, by the way, China's opening up, because that could also be quite inflationary if it doesn't work well on, on in terms of supply chain disruption. So these two things, I think, are quite relevant indeed for inflationary pressures in the U.S. Other, other Alicia, I, I agree with that. I, I think um, it's important to say that this brings some stability to government finance, and that's a big plus. So it shouldn't be all negative, as I was saying earlier. This does, in fact, fund the government through September 30th of 2023. It avoids the kind of crisis that we've had in the past, so that's a plus. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons, you said, uh, Barry, there's a 4,000-page bill. I'm guessing one of the reasons people aren't uh, reading it in Washington right now is because they're bracing for this massive storm that's coming. Uh, is, this, is this on your, your, your meteorological radar? 
not here in Washington, not yet. Look, it's cold here. We're we're below freezing, but uh, yeah, the storm is coming. You mentioned Vancouver, Seattle. They've had trouble. It's sweeping across the country. Chicago, there's flight advisories in Chicago. So it looks like we're going to have a white Christmas, at least in most parts of the U.S. I mean, they're talking uh, minus 50 degrees with cyclone strength winds, and it's affecting the price of oil. Like, I mean, is this this like weather like this does move the needle in terms of oil and gas prices in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, it does. But look, uh, oil has retreated to what the $70 range. So if uh, we're ever going to get a spike or a temporary jump in oil, this is the time to do it. Yeah. How, how hung? What do you figure? Are you, are you, have you got your eye on oil prices? I mean, so in the 70 range, I think it's, I think it's uh, threatening $80 now. It's on a bit of yeah. an upswing. That's right. I, I, well, besides the cold weather, uh, China is reopening up. Uh, so even though the process has been quite chaotic, uh, but, you know, the direction is very clear. So I think in the next couple of months, uh, as the Chinese uh, market uh, reopens uh, and then the demand for commodities and, and energy products uh, continues to increase, uh, then one should be surprised to see the upward pressure on the, on the oil price. Yeah, Alicia, what, what's your take on the energy markets given everything that's happening, which is quite a lot? Uh, yes, I quite agree. I think that China's reopening is a big elephant in the room. And um, the thing is, can there be a reversal? The answer is no, it's too late. So in terms of demand for energy, surely it, it, it's just a plus. In terms of the economy, economic growth, that might change depending on how chaotic that opening up is. But I think for demand of energy, there's no doubt. It's mm -hmm. going to go up massively. Yeah. And I mean, that, that opening of China is, of course, going to impact on um, energy and oil prices and demand, but it's also going to have an impact on stock markets in China and Hong Kong. I'm, I'm kind of uh, interested in this news of the Hong Kong Stock Connect expansion. They're making a big deal about it. Uh, is, it a big, is it a big deal with, with the expansion of new companies that can be included in the uh, definition of what goes into Stock Connect? Um, well, it's mostly uh, for the Chinese mainland uh, investors, you know, buying into uh, Hong Kong listed international companies. But as you see, in the past couple of years, the trading volume of these companies has been very limited. Right, Prada, for example, you know, the, the trading volume is appalling uh, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So it remains to be seen whether, uh, you know, by opening up uh, uh, for the Chinese investors to buy in, uh, you know, whether it can attract more attention to these names listed in Hong Kong. I think over the long run, uh, you know, because Hong Kong is a very important international financial market for, for China. Uh, so uh, to make the uh, um, Hong Kong stock exchange more international oriented for uh, the Chinese investors to invest in, uh, it is sort of a, a good direction. But it really remains to be seen what kind of effect you can have with this opening up. Why, why has the trading been so thin on, uh, you know, companies like Prada, international companies that have chosen to list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange? I mean, I, I remember when Prada listed, it was a big deal. It was like, ooh, everybody in China loves Prada. Yeah, right. like, why, why, is, why is the trading so thin? Why is it not? Uh... Um, well, because the Chinese investors are not very familiar uh, with, with the names, uh, the international names. And also, you know, there are many more thousands of names to be putting money in in, in the mainland market. And, and in, in generally speaking, uh, trading in China is more speculative, and therefore, uh, you know, if you get it right, you, know, you can get, you can reap huge gains. But you know, if you, if you put money in, into international names, sort of, it, it's far away from home, uh, and therefore the financial payments, etc., etc., is harder to interpret uh, for the Chinese investors. 
Yeah, Alicia, Alicia, what's your what's your take on this new uh, expansion of eligible companies? Not much to add. I quite agree that you know it's it's. Um, I mean, in principle, it's positive, but I think we also need to realize that it all depends again on the opening up. Meaning, it all depends on the prospects for China for China's growth. And I think so far, what we know is that at least for the for for the Politburo and the uh, Economic World Conference, you know, it's still pretty underwhelming. It's about 5%. So they, they themselves aren't sure whether this growth is going to come. I think it will. But, you know, as long as the market is not fully convinced, I think no matter whether you expand the index, I mean, it's, it's all about demand at the end of the day. So, yeah. I mean, so the New York Stock Exchange is this. They're old, they announced they're opening a, a new office in New York City. And as I said in the intro, I'm surprised they didn't have one already. There's the agreement uh, between the American authorities and the Chinese uh, Securities Regulatory Commission and the Chinese Ministry of Finance. I mean, is the, is, the, is the ice thawing a little bit in the China-U.S. investor relations, Barry? I mean, are Americans looking at some of these moves and thinking, eh, maybe it's time to start investing in Chinese companies again? Well, I think there is interest in looking. But uh, there's a freeze in effect, and it's been going back really three years. It's gotten tighter. Now we've had uh, President Xi and Biden meeting. If we get uh, the Secretary of State going into Beijing and some thaw coming, then things could change. But, uh, you know, for the American business community, they're very much on the back foot. They'd like to be more involved, but uh, as to new flows of investment into Hong Kong or to mainland China, it's, um, they're awaiting a signal from the government, and right now there is none. I mean, but you don't think the agreement between the American regulators about Chinese accounting practices and the Chinese agreeing to, uh, you know, kind of open the books more from listed firms? You don't, you don't think that's like kind of an, an oh, official signal? Oh, I think that's signal? significant. Yeah. And I think that is a positive development. And I think what is already in place is not going to be changed. But we're talking about new flows, or at least that's what I was thinking. And if there's new flows, uh, that awaits some kind of, um, I think, thaw mm -hmm. in U.S.-China relations. Okay. How long do you, would you advise people getting maybe more into Chinese stocks with the expectation of, of some more uh, North American or even European money flowing into them in a more friendly um, environment? Yeah, I, I think there should be a cyclical recovery in the Chinese stocks as well. You know, China reopened up and also monetary policy continues it should be supported for the market. So there, there is a trading opportunity here. But I think longer run, you know, people need to regain confidence in, you know, how the Chinese economy is being run by the government. All right. Well, we'll finish on a positive note then. I'd like to say thank you to Hao Hong, Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group, Alicia Garcia-Herrero, the Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at Texas, and RTHK's International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood, for joining us today on Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, people, we're getting to wrap it up here today on a Wednesday hump day money talk. Uh, having a quick look at the markets around the region. Uh, as expected on the, the week of that announcement, uh, the Nikkei is trending down at the moment, but the Kospi's up. The Australian Stock Exchange is up. Bitcoin, Ethereum are all on the up right now. So might be okay out there in some places better than others. So coming up on Back Chat, uh, we got Janice Wong and Danny Giddings getting ready to rock the airwaves. Tomorrow on Money Talk, we're going to have a special guest, uh, not one of our regulars, Angie Lau. The founder of Forecast.com is going to come and talk crypto with us. I'd like to thank producer Christy Lai and my man Tong Wing Ming on the soundboard for helping me uh, 
pull the show together today and your weather is fine and dry. Cool in the morning at night with a maximum temperature around 20 degrees. The current temperature is 16 degrees Celsius and humidity 57% on Money Talk. The time is now 9.830 and now the news with Tom Warden. The government's estimate of the cost of its massive artificial islands project off Lantau has risen from the $500 billion calculated in 2018 to $580 billion. In a revised proposal, it has also changed the route of a railway linking Lantau with the new territories. Maggie Ho reports. In a paper submitted to the Legislative Council, the government added that land sale revenue from private residential and commercial sites within the Kao Yi Chao Artificial Island project will be about $750 billion. The project is expected to provide at least 190,000 residential flats, with the first batch of residents able to move in in 2033 at the earliest. In the original blueprint, authorities had wanted to construct a railway to link North Lantau to the coastal area of Tun Mun, but are now planning to connect the strategic rail link to Hong Shui Q instead, where it is then linked to the Hong Kong Shenzhen Western Railway. The paper said the project is still at the preliminary planning stage. Roundtable lawmaker Michael Tian has re- expressed reservations about the changed railway route under the Artificial Islands project, saying it neglects the transport needs of residents in the Tunmun area. Now, they are switching that alignment to actually Hong Shui Q, coming straight down and neglecting the transport need for 500,000 Tunmun residents. So I have already made it very clear that I will oppose to the end with regard to the change in this rail alignment. New government figures show that inflation is steady, with consumer prices rising 1.8% year-on-year in November. That was the same as in October. Underlying inflation, which nets out the effects of one-off relief measures, stood at 1.7% in November. Afghanistan's education ministry says women will be suspended from universities until further notice. The move is expected to take effect immediately. It further restricts women's access to formal education as they were already excluded from secondary schooling. Here's the BBC's Anbarasan Atirajan. This has come as a huge shock and dismay for thousands of Afghan female students. You know, we were aspiring to become doctors and engineers, and some of them had already returned their final exams or preparing for their final exams, and all the future now is uncertain. They remain in limbo, and the international community has strongly condemned, like the U.S., the U.K., and the U.N., have strongly reacted immediately after this announcement because this is putting the future of tens and thousands of women at stake. At one woman uh, student, she was talking to the BBC earlier, she said they destroyed the only bridge that could connect me with my future. The U.S. State Department says the Taliban authorities have released two American nationals held in detention. A spokesman, Ned Price, said this appeared to have been a goodwill gesture on the part of the Taliban. He said it was not the result of a prisoner swap, nor was money exchanged. Mr. Price said the unnamed detainees would soon be reunited with their loved ones and that Washington would continue to push for more detained Americans to be freed. Hundreds of thousands of Argentine football fans have gathered in Buenos Aires to salute a victory parade by their World Cup winning football team. 
Crowds were massed as far as the eye could see around the iconic obelisk in the city center to cheer an open-top bus carrying Lionel Messi and the squad as they paraded through the streets. Marcela Moriarco is an Argentinian football journalist. Well, I think it's absolutely epic. I mean, there's no question about it. We've been basking in the glory of 1978 and 1986 until now, so this should keep us going for many generations. I think it's um, huge.